Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Those folks and many more of you have talked about how important it is to know who Jesus is, that, that He's not just an ancient character, but He still matters today. And yet there's, there are people today in our culture who want to reduce Him down to being a good teacher, a great man. And while he certainly was those, he is so much more because when we reduce him to that, those kinds of beliefs have profound implications about how we live because if Jesus was just a good teacher, it's helpful to follow him, but it's not critical. It's what he says may be valuable, but it may not be fundamental to how we live our lives. The early church has always wrestled with this issue about Jesus. By the late first century, Some 50 years or so after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the church was dealing with struggles from from both outside the church but also within the church and and dealing with issues that aren't so different, in fact, many times are very similar to what you and I face today. So over the next several weeks, we're going to explore the New Testament writing of 1 John to see how the, the early church dealt with those struggles, to see how they, their struggles can help you and me today deal with the same kinds of things in our world here in the 21st century, to see that, in fact, he does still matter very, very much. I, I chose First John because it, I think it speaks very powerfully to us today. It has important texts that many of us already know, texts that talk about forgiveness, like if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why does he do that? Because in the same uh, book, he also says God is love. That, that statement that is rocked solid, that is foundational to all Christian belief is found here in this, in this writing. But to get the most out of 1 John, we need to kind of get a, a lay of the land. What's the context? What's the setting that's going on here to explore some basic questions before we dive in? So we're going to look the, very quickly this morning at the who, what, when, where, why kind of background. And then in the last few minutes, we'll, sp- we'll spend a little bit of time on the first four verses of 1 John before diving in more next week. So the first question is who? And interestingly, 1 John does not name its author or its audience. Now, we might think it must be John because it says 1 John. But that title was not attached to it until several decades later. And yet it's obvious that he has a great love for those to whom he is writing. There are clear connections with a couple of writings that come right after it. There's 1 John. 1 John is located, by the way, in the New Testament almost to the very end of the New Testament. And there is 1 John, and then right after it, there is a very short writing called 2 John and another short writing called 3 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And also there is the Gospel of John, which is near the beginning of the New Testament, is the fourth of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we end up with three letters of John and the Gospel of John. And seven times in the first three verses, the writer, whomever he may be, uh, says in First John that he is a witness to Jesus. And, and interestingly, the best evidence we have doesn't come actually out of Scripture itself. It comes out of people who lived in the decades uh, right after this who wrote about these writings and who consistently referred back to the Apostle John as being the writer of it, the Apostle John. So what we end up with is 
1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, the Gospel of John, and also, also the Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, all being attributed to the, gospel, to the, the Apostle John. Though there are some indications that there may have been a little bit of editing by some of his followers in, in the years afterwards. That's the who. The what, um, we, we sometimes call it a letter, and Second John and Third John are clearly letters. They have a to whom and from whom kind of style, but that's not the case in First John. It, it lacks those elements. Most scholars tend to see them as being sort of like either a paper or a sermon, a written sermon. That leads us to when, and again, we don't have direct evidence about when it was written. Most scholars, though, tend to date it somewhere from the 70s uh, AD to maybe the early mid-90s, and typically set a few years after the writing of the Gospel of John. Location, the where, uh, again, no direct evidence, but the early, early church leaders who lived in the t- toward the end of the life of John and after reported that he lived in and around the city of Ephesus and, in fact, planted churches there. Uh, Ephesus is located, here's the, the Mediterranean, here's Jerusalem, here's modern-day Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Ephesus is here on the western coast of what we today call Turkey. Then it was called the province of Asia or Asia Minor. And then in the next slide, a little closer view of this area here. And and these, in fact, are the churches that are addressed in Revelation. Here is Ephesus. And here, about 50 miles off the coast, is the Isle of Patmos, the island of Patmos, where John says in Revelation, this is where he was when he had the Revelation and, and wrote this down. So fairly close to Ephesus. Um, Ephesus was a, a large city by those, that day and time, uh, at least 50,000, some say more than 100,000. It was the home of one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the Temple of Artemis. It was ruled by the Romans. However, its culture was probably more Greek, who, who had ruled that area a couple of hundred years earlier, and their influence continued to have a significant uh, underlying effect on the culture. It was also the home of a significant Jewish population by the time of the writing of it. Uh, John began churches in that area. He began what were called house churches. We, we come to church today in a nice building. In, in the first couple of 300 years of the early church, there were no buildings. Most of the time they were outlawed, so they met in homes. And so he started what would have been called house churches and uh, was considered the founder and father of many of those. The real question we'll spend a little more time on is why. Why why did he write this? And to do that, we've got to understand a couple of things. First, what we are reading in 1 John is his response to something else that's happening. The problem is we don't have any writings from those who he was addressing, those whom he was concerned about. We only hear one side of it. So it's kind of like when you're sitting in the office or at home and you hear somebody talking on the phone and you're trying to piece together. Now, what are they talking about? What, what, is, what is the deal here? What's, what's the situation? And that's sort of what we have to do as we read 1 John. But what it does appear is that John's understanding of who Jesus Christ is is being challenged by some of those in the Ephesian church. 
So we, we are trying to figure all this out. Uh, based on both the setting in Ephesus and, and in John's writings themselves, it appears that there were kind of two different schools of thought at work in John's churches, in addition to kind of the mainstream middle. The first school of thought was highly Jewish, uh, probably members who had converted directly from Judaism uh, and who still gave the Jewish law a lot, of, a lot of weight. They may have come to accept Jesus was a Messiah, the, the Christ, but their Jewish heritage made it hard for them to, to grasp that Jesus was fully God, that he wasn't just a man. And so they struggled to accept the full divinity of Jesus as the Son of God. The second school of thought was the, grew out of the Greek culture. It's often called Hellenistic. Um, and included both pagans or, or non-believers who had converted from that faith or that lack of faith into Christians. And it also included some Jews who had grown up in that culture for so long that that way of thinking had become a part of them, uh, even more so maybe than, than their, their Jewish uh, faith. And um, Greek or Hellenistic thought had a, some unique features about it. One was that it was uh, very dualistic. Um, it saw that matter, the stuff that everything is made of, atoms, okay, matter, whether it's a chair you're sitting in or this, this podium or even our bodies. The Greek thought saw this as being evil, while at the same time, spirit, that which is unseen, was good. Uh, by several decades later, by well into the second century, a philosophy of this had kind of grown up called Gnosticism uh, and, and derived from a Greek word called gnosis. Now, weird spelling, it's G-N-O-S-I-S. It's in your notes if you want to kind of look at it and make sense of that word. But the word gnosis means knowledge. And so Gnostics, seeing this dual vision of the world, despised the world, essentially, the, the, the things that we can touch and feel and smell. They despised it, and that included the body. They believed that the human spirit was imprisoned in the body, that, that the spirit was the seed of God, and only it within us was altogether good. And so the goal of life was to release this spirit imprisoned in our bodies, this seed of God, in this evil body, which could only be done by special secret knowledge. This is where that gnosis, that knowledge idea comes in, and elaborate rituals. Uh, and, and here's where they, they really, this is where it really hit hard against Christianity. They found it very, they, they, it was incomprehensible to them that on Christmas Day, God became flesh that God entered into and became incarnate in a human body, that he became one with us. They, couldn't, they could not comprehend a divine spiritual being giving that up. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul will write in Philippians chapter 2 that, that, that Christ emptied himself that to them was anathema. It was so unbelievable that they could not accept it because they believed that, that matter, 
body, flesh, was evil. And, and that's, that thinking still kind of goes around. Sometimes we think parts of our bodies or things about it are wrong or what we do. Totally out of character with what the Bible says, that body is valuable. In fact, it's very interesting that, that some of you have heard of something called the Apostles' Creed, where it says the resurrection of the body. The resurrection, not of the spirit per se, but of the body. That the body itself was valued and good. That Christianity has always seen that to be something worthwhile. But they could not conceive of that. Um, that, And so they came up with all kinds of theories. Like a divine spiritual being called the Christ. And, and, And when we talk about Jesus Christ, by the way, just so we're all clear, Christ is not Jesus' last name. I mean, but that's important to say. Um, Christ is a Greek word that means the same thing as a Hebrew word called Messiah, the anointed one. They're used, they're used, could be used interchangeably. They're just different languages. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. The Jews were looking for their Messiah. Or as they got into a Greek culture, they were looking for their Christ. And so these Gnostics saw that, that, that this divine being, the Christ, descended on Jesus at his baptism. What John the Baptist talks about is the Holy Spirit. They see him entering in and remaining and working, possessing this human body for three years. And then in in those moments before, as he's being crucified, that spirit departs him so that only the man Jesus dies on the cross. Another way they conceived of this uh, is where uh, that Jesus only appeared to be human, that he was really immaterial, he was a vision. And, and it's why as we read in 1 John, there are things in here where he talks about the physicality of Jesus, of seeing him, of touching him. Why? Because he is countering these, these, these wrong ideas that somehow he's not real or he's only spirit. But if if they were true, then we would have no reason to celebrate Christmas because Christmas is all about God incarnate, God becoming one of us, of emptying himself and becoming flesh and blood. They believed in Jesus, in him a great man was born, but not that God became flesh. So Greek dualism, Greek Gnostic thought made it hard for them to accept that that Jesus was fully human, the humanity of Jesus. So, couple of things that John offers us today that really matter, that are very helpful and important in how we think about Jesus. First, he provides us a balanced Christology. Now, Christology is another big word that just simply means the study of Christ, of understanding Christ, who he is, what he did, uh, of him as Messiah, Old Testament word, or Christ, New Testament word. For those who came from a a, a more Jewish school of thought, who tended to exaggerate or focus on the humanity of Jesus, John said Jesus always existed. He was there from the beginning. No human being could have existed then. He he said he was holy and pure. Jews believed humans could not be holy and pure. And he had returned to glory. 
For those who came from the other side of the, the, the aisle, more Greek or Hellenistic school of thought tended to, to exaggerate the divinity. They were all focused on that. And so John insisted Jesus was flesh and blood, that he touched him, that he was real, and he actually died on the cross. Now, What's interesting, what I found interesting as I was studying and looking at all of this over the last few weeks, is that John, the Apostle John, may have written at least part of this, or at least wrote this in part, as a response to the way his gospel was being interpreted, that it was being wrongly interpreted, that people were getting some of these ideas as they were reading what John had written in his gospel, and they were picking out parts of it that they liked and ignoring the full counsel of God, all that he was teaching here through what John had written. John's teaching, for instance, on the Holy Spirit, was, there was more here in God, John's gospel than any of the other gospels. And he says that the Spirit comes to live in believers as the living presence of Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 14, the Gospel John, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jumping a few verses forward, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, John saw this as teaching that the Holy Spirit establishes this, this close connection between the human Jesus of the past with the divine Spirit of God who continues to, to operate in the Christian community after the death of Jesus. That Jesus, Jesus says, I will be with you always. And that spirit is how that occurs. But, but the Greek Christians, the Hellenistic Christians, tended to pick and choose and interpret John in ways that he didn't intend. And they believed that if the resurrected Lord, through the Spirit, is speaking and acting in the church, in the presence, through them, then what Jesus taught in the past was no longer critical. In fact, if the Spirit lived in them and taught them, they didn't really need Jesus anymore because they could argue that they could know it for themselves. Now, I, 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 let me just, let's just think about that for a second. What they're saying is, because the Spirit now lives in me as a follower of Jesus Christ or a claimed follower of Jesus Christ, that Spirit who was also in Jesus the same Spirit is working in me, so if he leads me to make a pronouncement, if he leads me to say that something is true that Jesus didn't talk about or said was not true, it carries the same weight. It's the same Spirit. In fact, this is a newer revelation. And so there are people even today who want to say, the Spirit has revealed some new teaching to me, some new thing that Jesus didn't say or never agreed to or goes against biblical faith. But because there is this sense that the Spirit is now leading that. Guys, what we need to realize is this Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus didn't learn something new after he died and had to correct it. Jesus' teaching will always be the same. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so any teaching that does not align with Jesus and with the biblical record, even if someone claims to have received a vision of it, cannot fly with the biblical faith, with historic 
biblically grounded Christianity. And yet today, we still see people who make claims, well, look, you know, God has revealed this to me that flies in the face of, of teachings that are clearly in the Bible, of things that Jesus clearly said. This, this reality is a huge concern because people will say, well, what's true for you may not be true for me. There's no standard of, of no, no, no authority, no basis for what is true. And John is saying, yes, there is a basis. There are some things that are always true because God himself established them. God, the creator who made all there is, including us, is not going to contradict himself. And so it is incredibly important that we understand this because this is what John was dealing with. He was dealing with people who were saying, God has revealed something new to us, so we don't have to do it your way. We can, we can be promiscuous with our bodies because we think the Spirit has said it's okay, it doesn't matter anymore. We can be gluttons because it doesn't matter anymore. In fact, it becomes easy to justify almost anything you want. Because who's to say? Well, you know, the Spirit revealed that to me. I mean, if all of a sudden that's the trump card, then people can justify anything. And that happens today. That's why John will later say that we need to test the spirits. We need to always hold it up to God's eternal standard. And, and the church has understood that everything that is needed for salvation has already been revealed through Jesus Christ in God's word. There's nothing new. There's nothing more that can be added, that should be added. And when somebody does, as John was experiencing, that's the danger, very much the danger. And, and what was happening is that these Hellenistic Christians were taking the gospel of John and they were lifting up out of it parts that they liked that agreed with what they wanted to say and ignoring other things that were clearly in there. For instance, Jesus told about the gift of the Spirit in verse 16 that I just read. But the context of that, if you look one verse earlier in verse 15, Jesus, who is talking about the coming of the Spirit, says, first, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say, but you can change them later if the Spirit moves you to. But see, they don't point to that. They say, well, the Spirit will teach us in all truth. But Jesus says, if you love me, the, the big picture is you will keep my commandments. So not only does John provide, John provide us a, a balanced understanding of Jesus, of Christology, but he also refutes some ethical errors that were creeping in from both ends of the spectrum in his churches. The lifestyle of a, of, a, of a Christian should never be legalistic, but the Jewish Christians tended to do that. They tended to think it's all about the rules, and, and they forgot about love. But there are still commands that apply to all. And that was important for the Hellenistic Christians to understand, who, wanted, who felt manipulated, who, who wanted to go with their feelings about things when they didn't like what Scripture said, what John said, what Jesus had said, and they claimed that they were hearing from the Spirit. And, and that could override what Jesus had taught. John is saying Jesus' commands are absolute and they matter. They mattered then and they matter still today. So John was really writing to everybody kind of caught in between. 
the Jews on one side, the Hellenistic Christians, the Jewish Christians on one side, the Hellenistic Christians on the other side, trying to encourage them to keep the faith, stay committed to the true gospel that they had heard from him. At the same time, he's correcting the views of both of these schools thought, leading to right beliefs, correct beliefs and correct behavior, right Christology, correct Christology, and, and good moral ethics. And he insists on that the, that the factor we'll see in this, in this whole letter is that love and unity are incredi- incredibly important to accomplish this, this love that comes from God to overcome and hold together the stresses and the divisions that are occurring in that church. He says, yes, there are going to be stresses in your church. You're going to have some disagreements, but allow that love to be the glue that binds it all together. So with that, quickly, that overview of who, what, when, where, and why, I want to just dig into just the first four verses to this morning. First John 1, 1, uh, open your Bibles to it, or if you've got the notes, you can pull that out on the back near the top side of that is where this begins. We're just going to take a couple of minutes. Remember, John is dealing with churches who are struggling with, with right beliefs, particularly about who Jesus is. And some of them are leading them to lead lives that aren't ethical or moral, uh, that aren't aligned with the Christian faith, just as it happens today. And so in 1 John we begin in verse one, it says, that which was from the beginning. See, right there, he's already dis- dismissing some of the things some of the Hellenistic ones are wanting to say. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Very, a lot of physicality here. This is not some spirit. This is a real flesh and blood person. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, or some of your translations say was revealed, and we have seen it and and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And Jesus talks here of the word of life. It doesn't just mean a good word or a a helpful writing. Uh, He talks about this, he helps us understand this in his opening or his prologue to the gospel of John, John 1 Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So life, is this eternal life, isn't a byproduct of special knowledge, of going through the right ritual, It is anchored in a particular person in a particular time in history, Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus wasn't just a man because he also says he was there from the beginning. Not just the beginning of life, but before the beginning of time and is in fact God himself in the flesh whom we, well, we celebrate at Christmas John says this is a, is a fact because either he and others heard Jesus and saw Jesus and touched him, which again flew in the face of some of those who wanted to turn it into this high spirituality thing, and it's not about a person at all. Jesus was God in the flesh. And John tells us how he knows this, this how this was made manifest to him, revealed to him, is it came to him as an apostle. He and others witnesses. His authority is not just because he's a smart guy and he figured all this out. His authority becomes because he was there. 
what we have to realize is the early church did not have a Bible. They had the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but the writings that we call the New Testament were coming into being at this time. There wasn't a collection. So where did you stand? Where was the authority? What determined what was right thinking and wrong thinking? And the early church kept going back to the witness of the apostles. Those men who were there with Jesus, who spent time with him for three years, who talked with him, walked with him, and knew all this. And so John is saying, you know what? You guys may claim you understand some of this stuff that I wrote, by the way, but I was there. I was with him. I know what I'm talking about. I saw him crucified. I saw him resurrected. I understand this stuff in ways that you don't. And the early church needed that. They had to have a source to determine what was right when somebody in a church started getting their own idea and wanted to go off on a tangent. Not that their tangents were intentional to necessarily destroy the church. But ultimately, don't we all in life need some basis of authority? I mean, what determines right or wrong? Is it because there's a law? Is it because the United States Congress or the city of Houston wrote out a law and that determines it? Let me tell you, if that's it, then whoever is elected to office determines our laws. No, what Christianity has always said is the grounding of our, our beliefs, our morality, is based in God himself, in his very nature, as revealed in Jesus Christ. And the apostles were the witnesses, better than anyone else in history. What's more, the, the witness of the early church was that these apostles not only wrote their stories, but that the Holy Spirit guided them in the writing of those stories to reveal Jesus to you and me today. And he says, as these come to us, as these are, were revealed, that we are to then testify to it and proclaim this eternal life, this good news that he, that he offers. First John goes on and says, that which we have seen and heard, okay, what we've experienced, we then proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's writing this because he wants genuine fellowship in these churches where they are struggling, where there is a lot of this going on, back and forth, where a handful of people on both ends of the spectrum are pulling on the people in the middle and trying to get them to go their way or the other way. And, and, Jesus, and John is saying, my goal is for you to have fellowship. The word translated fellowship in the Greek is koinonia, which in classic Greek means to have something in common, communion, joint participation. But here John is pushing beyond just simply a, a, a rational understanding of this. He's pointing to a community that has experienced Jesus Christ himself in their lives through the Spirit, which leads to then a fellowship, he says, with God the Father. There is this vertical experience of God through Jesus Christ that then in living in us begins to impact our horizontal relationships with each other. More than just, hi guys, we're friends. 
No, we share Jesus Christ. His spirit lives within us. We are able to tackle the deepest issues and problems in lives. We are able to stand there with one another when we're battling cancer or a loved one dies because we are in this together because Jesus is at the center of our lives. This is what fellowship is, what koinonia is, that together Jesus binds the community together to love and care for one another. He's not, John is, is not only See, talking about this scandal of, of the incarnation, of God being in Christ, but taking it further, he's challenging his readers to live out that same incarnation in our lives. That God, through the Spirit, lives in us, and that fellowship means we live for each other through Christ in us. It plays itself out in our daily lives. And the result of that, he says, is joy. This deep abiding sense of contentment in our lives that they matter, that they're being used by God for the purposes for which he created us. We're not wasting them. We're not pedaling around, spinning our wheels. We're not just going and collecting a paycheck. We're not just shaking our head and wondering what's going on and what's wrong with the world. Instead, we are living our lives day in and day out for the glory of God in community with others for the sake of the transformation of the world. John is trying to restore this fellowship in his churches by emphasizing who Jesus is and, and the love that flows out of him into them that must then flow out into others in, in their relationships around them. It's why involvement in groups in any church in any time in history has always been so important and so valuable because it's a means of experience koinonia, fellowship with others, and then because Jesus lives in us through his spirit, koinonia, fellowship with God. That's why Gateway, we don't offer groups just because we think it's cool, because we want to give you something more to do. We offer groups because we believe they are grounded in the very nature of how you and I were created. We were created for this. In the image of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we were created to experience fellowship because God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit together experiences fellowship, koinonia, inherently in their very nature. Many of our ongoing life groups will have the opportunity this fall to continue digging in deeper into this study of 1 John, those who choose to do it, and we are offering a, a study guide. If you're in a life group and you want to do this, uh, that it's on our webpage uh, under the Find It page, at the top of it, it says Study Guide. We'll produce one each week that'll be out on Sunday morning that gives you discussion questions and scripture to look at that you can talk about within your group. Or for some reason, if you're not in a group, if you want to do it yourself, you can also do that. It's there not because, gosh, we're trying to give you busy work. It's there because we're trying to lead all of us to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we do that together in things like this. In addition, we got a, we've got, with a lot of other groups, there's, and they're gonna be right outside that door, many of them uh, here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, there's a group that's going to be, a short-term group that's gonna be doing First John. And they're gonna not only walk you through First John as a study that kind of complements what we're doing on Sunday morning, but they're also gonna show you more about how to study the Bible, how to go through and do that. And so that's a great study if you're struggling with how do I study the Bible, I wanna do more, then check out those guys out there because they would love to help you walk through that. 
If you want to learn more about the basics of the faith, about right thinking of Christian theology, we offer an a, a Exploring Christianity class that I and an, a friend of mine lead. And that's also, both of those are on Wednesday nights, and there's information about both of those out there. See, John wants you and me to understand that Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to experiencing life, to experiencing eternal life to its fullest, and that he does affect how all of us live our lives. He lives in us through his spirit, and therefore it should impact you and me in everything we do, everywhere we are, with whomever we are with. It's not just an hour on Sunday mornings. It's always, everywhere, the spirit is in us. Not to mislead us from things that Jesus did not teach, but to enable us to be in fellowship with one another and to proclaim, be witnesses and proclaim the good news that we have received. It plays itself out in this unity that we find in Christ because he so matters because, as John said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And without him, there is neither unity for fellowship nor is there salvation. And so there is no greater blessing than seeing followers of Jesus gathering together, learning about him, and growing together because John says his desire is that our joy may be complete. I know I love times when I'm in groups to, to meet other people, to share, to grow. And there's, there's no perfect group. I mean, all you got to do is look at the person next to you and say, I'll mess up the group. Not, yeah, you don't point to them and say they'll mess it up. Tell them you'll mess it up. Because that's the truth to some degree because we all are. But John was dealing with that. He had problems in these groups and he was trying to point them beyond that to build a community of faith, to experience fellowship, koinonia. And that's our goal as well, to help you experience that. And I can't do it for you. I can't grow your faith for you. I can't do it. I can't learn it for you. I can't share it with another for you. Only you can. And so we all have that choice. But we present this, we offer this, we encourage this because we believe this is what John was about because ultimately it was what Jesus was about. You want to talk to somebody more about some of this? Our prayer team is going to be right down here in, in front. Remember, our group fair is actually out there, and so leaders of a lot of the groups are going to be out there and, and talk to them because some of those groups start today. Others of them will be starting this week, so this is a perfect time to do that. It's, all the information is also on our website. On the, uh, go to the website and go to the Find It page, and you can find it there, and you can sign up online. We also we continue to want to just thank God for our first responders. And, and, and pray for them. Um, I won't be out there because I'm going to be over here. If you're visiting for, here for the first time, if you want to, I'd love to meet you with some of our other friends over here and just come stop by over here and say hello. Uh, we'd love to do that. Let me just close this in prayer and then we'll go. Gracious God, thank you for your grace, which is sufficient, for loving us so much that you allowed John to write not only to churches nearly 2,000 years ago, but writing to us today because the, the, the challenges that his church has faced are challenges we still face. Father, help us to listen to John and learn, not because it's just John, but because your spirit has worked through him to write these documents. 
to write this Bible, to teach us how to live, and ultimately to point us to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for him, Father. We thank you for the salvation he offers, for the truth he gives us about life. When others want to steer us wrong, when others want to do what's easy or feels right, sometimes his, what he says flies in the face of what we want to do. But ultimately, Father, it is for what is best for us. That is our conviction, and that has been played out over 2,000 years time and time again. Help us to trust Jesus more today, Father, and enable us to live that out with others in your fellowship that our joy may be complete. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, go Texans. God bless you. See you next time. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.